1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Um, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And this is the word of God. Be seated. Uh, thanks for having me here. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, my name is Pip, and today I'm going to be looking at Matthew 2, as was said. Um, and I'm really excited to, to teach about this, to, to delve into this. You know, I think uh, there's a lot of different lenses you can look at passages in Scripture from and get a great deal out of it. And the lens I kind of like, one of the lenses I want you to kind of like Put before your eyes, as it were, as we're looking at this, is the idea of who gets to be king. Who gets to be king? Who's, who's the king of the world in a broader sense, right? And, you know, I think that, that question, who's the king, who's the boss, right, is a common theme throughout history, from Roman emperors to, to Persian kings and, like, Mongol warlords, right? And now, in our day and age, there's still some kings throughout the, the, the world, but also we have celebrities, presidents, CEOs, people of great wealth and influence, who we become obsessed with, who we are, we are drawn to. Um, a side story of perhaps, uh, perhaps negligible relevance, but some relevance, I would say, is when I was, so for many years I was a substitute teacher, uh, and when I was, I, I'm, there's some things I did that I have thought, man, I hope those kids who are now adults look back and be like, wow, I can't believe that guy did that. He was, he was crazy. I can't believe he got away with doing it. And one of those was there's a sixth grade uh, class. They're very well-behaved sixth grade. They're basically like an honors class. Um, there's a sixth grade. I was there for like three months or something while the teacher was on maternity leave. And I remember one day I told him like, hey, if you guys are really good, if you're like great listeners today in the morning, then in the afternoon I'm going to have a special speaker come in. And they did well. And so uh, during lunch, uh, I went out to my car and I picked up uh, a mask that I had found at a 99 cent store. Uh, it looked like kind of like a bootleg Dr. Doom. It was like this golden mask, um, golden kind of robot mask or maybe like an Agamemnon vibe. 
Uh, and I remember picking it up and taking it, and then when the kids came back in, I told them, okay guys, you're good, so you get that special speaker, and I dimmed the lights, and I had them put their heads down or close their eyes, and then I went to the back closet, and I put on this red, uh, red hoodie I had, zipped it up, and I put on this golden mask, and I had the, the hood up, and then I went, to, and I said, now you can open your eyes, and they, they opened their eyes, and there standing before them was this gold-plated, this guy with a gold-plated face. And I, I said I was their guest speaker, that my name was Electronicus. Uh, they were into it, too. It was great. And we, I, I fielded some questions. He actually made a return visit uh, several times. But at one point, I said, what is, uh, oh, does anybody here know how to spell responsibility? Responsibility. And they were like, oh, R-E-S-P. And I was like, no, that's not how you spell it. And I took a marker, and I said, this is how you spell it. And on the board, I wrote POWER. POWER. I think it was in all caps. Uh, and I don't know how many kids have thought back of, of, on that, but I remember some kids talking about it afterwards. But I love this idea that, you know, like, it was basically like a cartoon su supervillain visited them. And, you know, cartoon supervillains, if there's one thing they have, it's like a recurring obsession with power, right? It's, it's a thing of, like, so many kids' shows. You think of how many kids' shows are about kids who find out they actually have secret powers, right? And it's interesting, like, this obsession with power, it can feel, like, ridiculous, and the subject of like just low, but you know, low budget uh, cartoons and sci-fi and whatnot, but also, it's our obsession, right? It's like it almost feels laughable in some contexts, but then actually, I think it's actually what's underneath so much of our society, so much of our lives, because power means control. Power means control, and you, you even think about just like. Think of the people you know who, particularly in the last few years, have become consumed with politics. I feel like there's, there's people we can probably all think of who, over the course of several years, didn't just like get into politics, but became absolutely like eaten alive by politics. And politics, you know, at the end of the day, I think this is particularly why it becomes so violent and so intense for people, is because it is about who has the power. And oftentimes, it's a, that when people view it as like, well, the end, the end goal of human life, the, the kind of the, what it all boils down to is who has the power, who has the power. You know, you even just think of human relationships, friendships, dating relationships, like all, on all sorts of levels, right? Marriages, when they boil down to power games, how horrifying is that? How ghastly is that? You know, it, it is so desolate and sad when you kind of like take in the image that many people have of what society is all about. You know, if, if any of you perhaps in college studied like Michel Foucault or kind of postmodern theorists, theorists, a lot of them are about seeing through everything in, in society, whether it's, whether it's literature, whether it's history, whether it's just everyday relationships, all these things, they kind of see through them and say, oh, it's ultimately just all about power games. It's not even about truth. It's about power games, right? And what a nightmare that is to think about. I think of that James Joyce quote that history is a nightmare that he's trying to wake up from. And indeed, you know, like, if that's what the world is about ultimately, it's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. And, you know, it's, it's strange, too. In human beings, we have this weird kind of binary within us. On the one hand, we claim we, like, don't like kings, Right? And we're kind of obsessed with like our own autonomy and being in control and functioning like kings of ourselves, right? But on the other hand, we're drawn to leaders. We like kind of turn to authoritarian leaders oftentimes to promise, who promise us safety and a place to belong. And I think I would posit that there's a recurring theme through the ages, throughout all, all, uh, all societies, right? The recurring theme is the question of who has the power, who will keep me safe, 
And underneath that, who gets to be God? Who gets to be God? And actually, this question goes back to the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, for it was there that human being, that God made humans good and gave them, made them rulers under his good rule of creation. Uh, we were in perfect, unbroken relationship with him. And yet then we tried to be kings of ourselves, gods, as it were, right? And wound up enslaved because underneath sin, any sin, is really an attempt to usurp God's rule. To say, like, I am actually, I'm going to trust myself in this. I'm going to do it my way. I'm not going to let you be Lord. I'll be Lord. And there's, there's fear bound up in that. There's, uh, there's an anxiety. We aren't meant to be rulers of the universe, right? But nonetheless, there's, it's, like in a, it's in a rebellion of sorts. And so here we are now in a fallen world where we both crave and despise authority and power. We have people ruling over us. Uh, we, we hate them, and yet we also crave people to rule over us. You know, you think about authoritarian movements, authoritarian movements throughout history, right? Authoritarians don't rise without masses who kind of lift them up and support them. They don't just rise in a vacuum, right? And, you know, you even just think about attempts that have been made throughout history to have, like, societies where there are no kings, and it's completely egalitarian. There's no leaders. And oftentimes, those societies kind of, or those movements kind of fizzle out or fragment, or leaders rise nonetheless, and scary leaders, right? Like Stalin. That was supposed to be uh, an, a leaderless movement, as it were, in the sense of, like, truly egalitarian. Everybody's on the same page. And it turned into, like, horrifically oppressive regime. And even when there are virtuous rulers, who, like, you know, like, who try to rule with humility and wisdom and justice, they still make mistakes and sin. And eat, no matter what, they still die, right? They still die. They're mortal. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, it's so interesting. You see, like, these sequences of kings. And there'll be kings who, like, seek the Lord. Despite their flaws, they, like, are seeking the Lord and seeking to do what honors him. And it's like, okay, we're great. A, like, a good king, right? And then you know, you read it in the chronology, and then after that, a king arises, like that king's son, who like disregards all that and just sets up a bunch of idols, and just Israel continues to, to further go down to tubes. The truth is, we cannot heal ourselves, nor are we equipped to be kings of the universe, and so we're in, we're in a mess. We're in a bind, right? Because we need the king to save us, the original king, the true king, the only king who was able to do so. And there's so many things in this, this, this text, but I want, it to, want it, I want you to have this in mind as we're thinking about, like, who is king? And there's two kings in particular I want to point out. King Herod, obviously, King Jesus, right? And observe, what is Herod the king's reaction to Jesus? What is the Magi's reaction to Jesus? And I think something that's implied in the larger narrative is God's reaction to us. God's reaction to us. So, the setting here, um, right in verse 1, right? We're at a time when Rome is ruling over Judea, uh, it's, Rome's like the latest in a succession over the centuries of pagan rulers since the fall of Jerusalem about 500 years ago, uh, prior to this. Um, the Jewish people have been longing for a Messiah uh, for centuries, and there have been some, like, around this time, there are, like, alleged messiahs who have risen up and inevitably failed or been crushed and died. Uh, so this is a time when the concept of, of kingship, of ruler, rulership, that's a fraught topic. It is loaded. It is, it is really heavy. And Matthew 1 uh, tells us, right, it, it establishes that this child to be born is the rightful heir, the rightful uh, ruler, uh, rightful heir of David's throne. Uh, so chapter 1 shows us that Jesus deserves royal honor, and then in chapter 2, it's going to show that he receives royal honor, and it's specifically here, it's going to be talking about him receiving it from Gentiles, from actually people you would not expect to be giving it, though there are 
whispers and hints and prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to this reality, it's still, you know, you think of it in context. It's, it's kind of shocking, and we'll talk more about that. Um, and uh, so here it seems um, time-wise, okay, so Jesus was born prior to Herod's death, um, and Herod's death is estimated around 4 BC. That's when scholars seem to generally agree on. There's a little bit of contention on it, but he ruled from around 37 B- 37 BC through 4 BC. He died around 68 years of age. He, um, he ruled Judea. And by all accounts, he was a scary king, a scary king bent on power. Rome actually appointed him king of the Jews, which is fascinating, you know, because we, our conscious king of the Jews is like, oh, Jesus, of course. But at this time, Herod was actually, a, the, that title would be applied to him. And extra biblical accounts like uh, Josephus, they, t- they, tell us things about Herod, which you realize that, you know, when you talk about politicians being corrupt and stuff, you kind of realize when you look historically and at people like him, you realize, well, by historical standards, we have it easy because we haven't had a president who, while in power, executed his wife, his brother-in-law, and his three sons, right? And all the things which Herod apparently did. And he actually apparently had one of his sons executed five days before Herod's own death. Brutal, absolutely brutal. Um, He had a bunch of building projects, too. Uh, including like elaborate work that was done on the second temple. But so interesting, like he had all this power, he did all this stuff, but now what do we know him by? Outside of, you know, historians who would have been, been aware, like, you know, in some kind of niche records who would, would have probably known of him anyway, the reason anybody knows of him broadly now is because of his connection with the child born in the manger, not because of his building projects or his actions as, as king, but because of the child born in the manger. And Herod's dead, right? All kings die, except one. So if you know a little bit, knowing a little bit about Herod, you know, right here, when he shows interest in a, somebody, a child being born who's potentially king, that's no surprise, but also it should be like raise flags, like be alarmed, like this is not going to be good news for the king because he's, uh, this king is a potential rival and we know what Herod does with rivals. He tries to dispatch them. So, verse 3, I think, is very interesting. Uh, Herod, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So, given all that context, I think we know why Herod is troubled, right? But I think it's interesting that what is, why is Jerusalem troubled? Why is Jerusalem troubled? Because isn't this what they're longing for, a Messiah to be born? And I wonder if they were troubled. It doesn't say explicitly. I wonder if they were troubled in the sense of just like, what does this mean? You know, you think of you think of when you have something that is long anticipated, which you've, which you've been wanting, craving for a long time, and then it may perhaps it almost seems like, oh, I've been disappointed so many times. That, all right, you just kind of say to yourself, I don't even think it's going to happen. And then some signs appear that, oh, I think it's actually going to happen. And, you know, it's strange because it's a thing we crave, crave, but at the same time we're kind of like, ah, this feels kind of troubling. And I wonder if that's what's going on here. And so Herod, Herod assembles all the chief pri- priests and scribes to inquire when the Messiah would be born. Uh, and there's a specific prophecy from Micah 5.2. And it's interesting to me, too, that, that even just that Herod is, Herod, from what I can tell historically, he did observe at least as selected aspects of Judaism. Uh, not necessarily the, the justice, or <laughs> justice or loving God pieces, right? But, uh, but some aspects. And it's interesting to hear that he's like calling people who are versed in the scriptures to be like, okay, when, when's the Messiah going to be born? And we have this quote here. 
and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem uh, is about something like six miles, uh, miles south of Jerusalem. It's a city of Div- Davidic kings. So it's actually where David is from, and it's even actually where uh, David's forebearer, um, his ancestor Ruth, is from. It's an important city. Seems like a small city in this context, right? But it's an important city, a vital city. And notice even here it says, he will shepherd, uh, who will shepherd my people Israel. And it's, it's interesting to me even like, the Bible is so full of all these kind of like, elements and themes which echo other parts of the Bible. And even thinking here, like, okay, like a shepherd. David was a shepherd boy, right? Shepherds actually came to, to worship Jesus at his birth. Psalm 23 talks about the Lord being a shepherd. Like shepherd, sheep and shepherding is the theme which comes up again and again in the Bible. And here we see him. He's going to shepherd God's people, Israel. And Herod, right, he says, uh, so he summons these wise men, these wise men, Ask them about when, when this, you know, when, this, when the star appears. Ask them to tell him when, when they actually find this boy, right? So Herod says he wants to see, and we'll see in the ensuing, in the next, uh, I believe we'll be covering it next week, right? You're going to see that, oh, he wants to see so he can kill the child. Like, there's just no, he has no desire to worship him. He has a desire to kill him. You think of the deceit of evil. Um, and it's interesting, too, even in, in this regard that, that Herod, is one, there's deceit going on, right? But also, in his desire to find the child in order to kill him, there's something else going on. There's a power behind Herod. Satan. There's another usurper, right, of, of kingship, and that's Satan. Uh, the books of Daniel and Revelation, they actually give us a vision of spiritual powers behind the powers of the world. Like, behind the kind of machinations of history, there's something else going on. And here's an instance where we see this, right? Herod is thinking about his power. He's thinking about consolidating his power. But behind this, there's actually Satan trying to exterminate this child, this Messiah, who was actually God's own son. So, you know what's interesting in in particular is Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, it specifically speaks of a dragon, a demonic figure, a satanic figure, trying to devour a male child that's born to be ruler as soon as he is born. And seems like such a clear connection between this and actually what happened at Jesus' birth. That right at Jesus' birth, immediately, Satan is trying to destroy this child. But thankfully, Herod's plan is thwarted because the Magi do not tell him where the child is. And good place for us to stop and pause and consider, like, who are the Magi? Who are these wise men? So, different translations say, some translations say wise, wise men, some uh, translations say Magi. I think there's even some tra- translations which say, like, astrologers, right? But the actual word uh, is, it has to, it's, in general, it, there's like a lot of associations with it, right? But in some places, the word, the word magi is actually translated uh, as, well, we have wise men. Some other places in a different context, it's translated sorcerers, right? So you think of magi and the, that word, that root word has to, has to do with magicians, magic, right? And there's a lot of potential associations, links to astrology, links to Zoroastrianism. Um, In general, like the kind of consensus would be that these are people who are considered like priests and uh, of some sort of spiritual authorities in a pagan context, right, in Persia and Babylonia. Um, There's even, there's links made in Daniel, when Daniel's like kind of put in his, uh, and his friends are put into a specific class in the courts of Babylon where they're like kind of seers and, and they're supposed to be wise men 
magicians, astrologers interpreting events, interpreting dreams, these kinds of things. So this is kind of the general sense in which people view this. This is like, oh, that's, this is who the Magi are. And you know, it's interesting too, though. I want to avoid a lot of speculations because sometimes people speak very forcefully about things which the Bible does not make explicitly clear or which are kind of like extra-biblical accretions on top of the text, right? So one, for instance, is the idea that they're kings. You know, you think of that song, We Three Kings. It doesn't actually say they're kings anywhere in the Bible. I mean, they may have been, I don't know, but it doesn't say that they are. It doesn't say there's three either, right? Uh, the three is kind of assumed because there's, th uh, there's three gifts. So I don't know how many, how many magi there were. It is possible, too, they arrived with, like, a large retinue, like a whole bunch of people coming with them, particularly if they hold positions of authorities in the country they're coming from. But we don't know. We don't know for sure. It's always helpful, just when you're reading the Bible in general, to, when you're looking at a text, to kind of, like, consider what is actually in the text and kind of clear away the stuff that kind of is the cultural trappings that have accrued on top of it. Some of it may be true. I mean... They may indeed have been kings, right? But it doesn't actually say that. So it's always good to kind of clear these things off and look at what does the text say. Sometimes people kind of find themselves in kind of theological quandaries because they have had, they're importing a bunch of ideas that aren't actually in the Bible. So it's always important to just like look at what does the Bible actually say. Um, it doesn't actually tell us where they're from exactly either, right? It says if they're from the east. Now whether that's Persia, Arabia, Babylonia... I don't know. But what we do know is that there was enough of awareness for them of the Lord, of truth, for them to come all this way, and enough, we'll see, for them to actually fall and worship. It's been speculated that actually, perhaps, that if these guys are, they're like in a pagan kind of class of, of uh, whether they're kind of scholars of sorts, whether they're like astrologers, whatever they are, there's actually ideas that perhaps they actually have, they have some of the idea of a Messiah, somebody being born to be king of the Jews, that this is actually coming from Daniel uh, about 500, 600 years earlier, that because he was, he and his, his Jewish friends were actually like, they were kind of the head um, or certainly influential figures in, uh, in, a ba in the Babylonian kind of like category of Magi. And so perhaps like his prophecies had been passed down uh, generation to generation that, that uh, those truths had kind of disseminated and diffused through this culture. And so there was an awareness of that from, from Daniel or even earlier. Still, and there's actually a pagan prophet, Balaam, who's in the book of Numbers. And he actually makes a prophecy, very interesting, connecting a star rising to a leader rising, rising, rising uh, out of Israel a leader who would crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So that's interesting. That's in Ro uh, Numbers 24. So there's a suggestion that maybe they've even like had looked at back at this ancient prophecy and it, it had come down in form and yeah, maybe they had some sort of syncretistic understanding of different religions, but there was truths, the truths about who God actually is that had come through. And lo and behold, they actually are drawn by that truth. They're truth seekers and they're confronted by the Messiah, Jesus. But in any case, we know that they came from the east to honor Jesus, the newborn king, and the Lord clearly is leading them there by means of a star. Now, I think it's, it's beautiful and fascinating here that God communicated through his creation in a way that they recognized. I don't know the mechanics here. I'm not going to, like, dive into speculation on how exactly the star worked. It's a miraculous event, right? Like, God is intervening in his creation to do something. 
uh, to draw people to himself. It's not, you know, some people have read in a vindication of astrology through here, even though the Bible is clearly like, when it comes to astrology, it's like, no, no bueno, like stay away from that kind of stuff, right? Um, but there's vindication that, like people, some people see, oh, I think it was a vindication of astrology. How I personally just think about it is, you know, I don't know, they're studying the stars. You know, if you think of medieval alchemists, medieval alchemists are this kind of like group of people who people, uh, you look back and like, oh, they were like doing studies, what we would call now legitimate scientific studies into the nature of matter and all these kinds of things. And they were also studying how to turn like metals into gold and how to find like an elixir of life, that kind of like of eternal life, that kind of thing. And what you see is there's like a meshing of things that we consider scientific now and things we consider superstitious, right? And I think of ancient wisdom, I think like, ah, the Magi, I can imagine them being like, oh, they, they had astrology in there, they had astronomy in there, like the legitimate study of the stars. They had things which were like, oh, they, they're like an awareness of the truths of who the Lord is, his work in Israel, maybe like some degree of awareness of that, maybe mashed in with like Zoroastrian ideas, like fire worshiping and stuff, who knows? Like, but I kind of view it as like, oh, they probably had a mishmash of ideas, but the Lord spoke to them in the midst of these things, through this star even, and drew them to himself. God honors those who seek truth, right? And he leads us. We're all, you know, we're all off. We all have wacky ideas one way or another, whether we're aware of it or not. And he draws us to himself and draws us to his truth. And I, I think that's what's going on here. So in any case, and you know, there's books uh, on specific theories as to this Christmas star and what what that means, or how it like, did it appear, and then kind of like disappear, and then reappear again. In any case, what we know is God used this star in a special way to draw them to himself, revealed himself to them in a way they could understand, and drew them to meet him. And you know, it's cool even to think of like the, the motif of stars in the Bible. If you go way back to Abraham, in God's initial call, one of God's initial calls to Abraham, he tells him he bade him to go out and count, uh, look at the stars, consider the stars and like count them, right? And it's part, it was bound up in God's promise to bless the nations through Abraham. Psalm 19 speaks of the heavens declaring the glory of God. And what's so cool is God's, God's like promise to bless the nations through Abraham. Here, the Magi actually like are, are another picture of that of the incoming of the Gentiles, of the fact that this wasn't just a Jewish Messiah, it was a Messiah for the whole world, and we are all welcomed in. And we see here, like, right at Jesus' birth, before his, before his ministry on earth, right, before he was crucified, before he rose again, before, like, the gospel explicitly goes out to Gentiles, we have here a picture of him blessing the nations, welcoming people in. He's a Messiah of the whole world, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so, uh, verse 11, we have, uh, it says the, the Magi, they went into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and it seems, it's child there, right? It seems that Jesus is older, actually. When Herod sends out a decree later to kill all the kids uh, two years old and under, it seems to in indicate some time has, has passed since Jesus' initial birth and the shepherds come in worshiping, right? So some time has passed. He's some, some eight, two years old and under, I would imagine, under, right? Uh, but they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so let's talk about those three things quickly. Gold. Um, so gold is precious in the Bible, right? You know, uh, it's, we see it right at Genesis 2. Uh, there's, a, there's a mention of the gold of a particular land being good. Um, gold is used in the temple. 
in God's temple, and there's like associations with royalty. You know, it's interesting because gold now, it feels like kind of like, I mean, people still yearn for gold, but when I think of gold, a lot of times I, it, it feels kind of silly, right? It feels kind of gaudy. You think of like a gold-plated iPhone, uh, or I think of like Vegas hotels with like faux gold all over it, right? Or you, you think of gold as this kind of just like shorthand word, kind of cheap shorthand word for luxury. Or I think of like the many, and I love, I love the naming conventions for Chinese restaurants, like Golden Legacy, Golden Dynasty, and stuff. So many, so many golden names. It bring me great joy. So gold then, right, is not gaudy the way way it is now. And you even think about if you're living in like kind of a grimy world, right, like more connections to the earth, right, more time in nature, kind of less less of a built-up world. Though Rome was certainly built up, but less of a built-up world where we're surrounded by everything we're surrounded by is man-made, artificial, right? But if you think of living in kind of more like a dusty world, you know, mud, right, Um, grit, and then you see you're beckoned into a place where you see the glitter of gold. It would be incredible, right? You think of its rarity, and you think of like less fake golds all around you. There would be a sense of, I I would think, even like an otherworldly sense to it, which, again, connotations with royalty, right? There's a reason kings had all this golden stuff, all these trappings around them. Then frankincense, which is an aromatic resin. I love that phrase, great band name. Uh, Somebody take it, it's there. Uh, An aromatic resin uh, derived from plants, it's used as an incense. And it's actually most often it's mentioned in the Old Testament in connection to the temple worship of the Lord of all. And it's interesting, it's also mentioned in Isaiah 60 in the context of a prophesied future time when foreign nations would, would flock to Israel. And lastly, myrrh. So myrrh is another aromatic resin. There's that name again. Um, it was used to perfume beds. It was used in bridal processions. And also it is used as an anesthetic, right, a painkiller and in burial. And actually, Jesus' earthly life, do you think of Jesus' earthly life started with his gift of myrrh? Uh, and it would end uh, with him being offered myrrh mixed with wine as a painkiller when he was being crucified, and he refused it. And then myrrh was actually used to wrap into his death shroud, so he's buried with it in there. It's amazing to think, like, from this, this child. I mean, that's, that's one of the things I think is, like, startling when you think of Christmas songs and like just the general cultural trappings of Christmas. The reasons Christians believe it is good news is not just because, oh, this sweet baby was born, but this baby was born and people were going to kill it. Like right from the get-go, Herod's trying to kill it, and eventually people do succeed in killing the child. But in that death, there is victory because he rose, right? So gold's associated with kings, frankincense associated oftentimes with worship of the Lord, and myrrh associated with different stages of human life. And some see uh, in that, I think that it makes sense, there's like these associations, like royalty, Jesus is king, uh, worship, Jesus is God, and human life, Jesus is man. Uh, And you know, there's a beautiful irony to this too, that the magi, these wise men, they're giving gifts from the world, obtained from the world itself, to the one who actually made the world, who wove the material universe itself. And they're giving treasures to the one whom we're told in Colossians, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And after this, verse 12, God warns the Magi, uh, spoke to them in a dream. Um, You know, the Bible doesn't say all our dreams are God-given. I think we can all think of dreams uh, that have been like, oh, that was definitely not from the Lord, right? Uh, Of wacky dreams, right? Um, But it's interesting that, that there are multiple occurrences in the Bible of God speaking through dreams. And they listened to God, even when it meant disobeying this evil king. 
I think there's, there's something in that for us, right? Obeying, obeying and honoring rulers, except when their commands disagree, like come up, rub up against what God actually commands us to do. And even, to, you, it's so interesting to me, you think of like God here is warning the Magi to get out of there so they, don't, they aren't killed by, or so one, uh, like uh, Herod doesn't get to Jesus. But also I think there's like care for the Magi, the Magi for the wise men's own lives in that. And it's so interesting to me that the contrast between God, the ruler of the universe, in grace and kindness, inviting these people to, to celebrate the birth of the Savior and then warning them so they don't get hurt. And at the same time, Herod is seeking to trick the wise men and he's going to go out and kill a bunch of kids because he's, he's just like so thirsty for his own power. So I think zooming out of all this, right, zooming out, what are the things we can, we can learn from these people? Two kings in this text, right? King Herod, King Jesus. King Herod is given the, the formal title king of the Jews by the Roman rulers that he served under. And then there's the actual king of, the, king of the Jews. One of these kings is living for himself and trying to consolidate his own power, and he is now long dead. And the other king, instead of just desperately trying to consolidate his own power, he, in a sense, divests himself of power, right? He, um, he li- lives for others to serve. He dies for his people, and now he's alive forevermore and has all power in his hands. And what's more, you know, I think the, the mind-blowing thing is we number history by him. This is 2023 A.D. Anno, A.D. is Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. And now people will say B.C.E. before common, uh, I'm sorry, C.E., common era. But it's the same thing, remembering by Jesus the approximate time of Jesus' birth. This earthly king, Herod, in the end, he tried to be a king in control of things, but in the end, he's a tool, right? In, I guess, multiple meanings of the, of the word, right? He's a slave. And there's only one true and lasting king. Everything in this narrative is pointing us to the one whom it is all about, King Jesus. And think about what the text tells us about this kind of king. And think about what it tells us right now for today. So Jesus, right, he's not a mere mortal king scrambling to claim a throne through subterfuge and violence and power games. He is God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. And there's a shock in that. You know, I think the danger of growing up, of living in the West, where we're kind of, we hear Christmas carols over and over, and we live in a society in which we think we know the Christian story, is we actually get kind of like dulled to the shock of the incarnation, the shock of God coming into the world to be killed by his own creatures and to rise again, to save them. You know, it's like one thing to hear a story, and it's another to be dazzled by, like, the height and the depth of what it reveals, to actually see it for what it is, and its cosmic significance, and its significance for our lives today. I think we need to try to, in essence, like, defamiliarize ourselves to an an extent with the Christmas story and see it again with fresh eyes and be like, this is shocking, absolutely shocking. Jesus, obviously, born into, not born into a rich family, not a palace, and yet he owns everything. And through his humiliation, he experiences exaltation. Meanwhile, the, the Rome-appointed king, he had the power. He lived in a palace. He was, a palace. He was like, seemed to be invulnerable in some sense, except he was, in the end, he was deeply vulnerable, and it was all torn away from him. All torn away from him. So, God... Having all power comes to serve and to save. And I think, I think it's, Christmas is a reminder of many things. But I think, I think we are perhaps best served by being, one of the things we're best served by is remembering to situate ourselves in the time we are actually in. We're living in between Jesus' initial coming, his 
He's crucified. He rose again. He ascends to the Father, right? His first coming and his second coming, which is coming. It says that Jesus will come as, as judge of the world, right? To judge the world, to set things right. Right. We're living between those two times. And it can be easy to get, again, dulled by the world and just kind of like overwhelmed by the, the everyday problems of life, the vicissitudes of life, even just the pleasures of life, and kind of focus on our own little lives. But we live in the midst of this great story, and it's a good story. It's a good story. You know, we, we talked about, we, we've looked at Herod's reaction, we've looked at the Magi's reaction, and then just think about what is my personal reaction? What, what is our reaction, right? How do we react to the, the good news? Around this time of year, we hear a lot of like watered down Christmas message, messages, like as if Jesus, the point that he came for is just to tell everybody to be nice. But that's not true. That's not true, right? Jesus actually said, he said, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather, uh, no, I tell you, but rather division. And he does come to bring ultimate peace, but also, in order for that peace to come, there is a division of sorts because there's a choosing of who will we align with, who is king. He calls us to make a choice based on who he is. And we see it here in this text. Uh, the wise men, right, uh, anticipating the, the future welcome of the Gentiles, they're rejoicing while Herod, and seems like all, all Jerusalem, is troubled. And Herod actually just schemes to destroy the hope of the entire world. The, the wise men cast themselves down in worship, giving gifts, giving giving their, 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 uh, the best of themselves, you think of it as a sense, in worship, right? To honor him. Jesus' birth is good news if you want it to be, right? As is his return. But it's mourning for those who, who uh, rebel against him. It is mourning, right? If you choose ultimately to just kind of stiffen your neck and be like, I, I, he's not my king. I don't want part of this king. That's a scary place to be. You know, uh, I remember... Man, I remember specifically where I was when I was reading this verse and it hit me. Um, I may have even said this last time I was here, but there's a verse, I believe it's in Matthew, where Jesus, uh, it talks about Jesus' return, and it says that the tribes of the earth will mourn. Will mourn. And it's a shocking thing. Like, why would they mourn? And you realize, oh, I think it's because, like, the game is up. We don't get to, like, do what we want anymore, like playing power games with the earth, oppressing, oppressing the weak, right? Just kind of, like, searching out endless pleasures in rebellion against him and weak pleasures, right? There's like a mourning in that. And that's, that's terrifying. But again and again, the whole point of Jesus coming is an invitation to us, an invitation to us who are rebels, who, who want to do things our way, rejecting him. It's actually an invitation for us to experience true life and freedom. Jesus welcomes into his kingdom all who would accept him, all who would bow their knee their knees. So the question is, what is our ultimate response? Will we love him or will we hate him? Will we scramble for control or will we surrender and cede control over to him? Because he's a king who serves, right? He's a king who took on his people's sins so that we can experience forgiveness and reconciliation, saved from hell, exalted to a royal place as sons and daughters of the Most High God. You can trust that king, a king who washes our feet. You can trust him. You don't have to be afraid he's going to mess with you. He loves you. And it's helpful to remind ourselves of that right now, right? You know, I think we can oftentimes, like I said, be so consumed by what's going on in our lives that we forget the big picture of history. And in the Bible, we kind of, the curtain's lifted, and we see this kind of cosmic battle, right? Herod acting out of self-interest, that ended up making him a demonic tool. 
right? Um, the Magi just like seeking truth and Mary and Joseph having humility, like an everyday faithfulness. Those were used by God to bring, proclaim the salvation of the world. And literally all people, we're celebrating Christmas. People all over the world celebrate because they said yes to God and they were humble and sought him. He will use us if we seek him, even in just like simple everyday faithfulness in ways that don't seem glamorous, in ways which don't seem, don't seem earth-shaking, right? But even just in the, the proclamation of the gospel and loving people and even just coming to church on a Sunday and gathering with Christian community, that's saying something. You know, Paul talks about when we're having communion, when we're sharing the Lord's Supper together, that is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. There's like a proclamation in that. So in these simple everyday everyday acts, we're doing something very sweet, very special. You know, in a little bit, right, we're going to have a time of worship and prayer and communion and reflection. And my hope is that as we're doing that, like, the Spirit just kind of brings up in our minds and our hearts for each of us whatever we need to hear. You know, I think Christmas for a lot of us doesn't mark a fun time. It actually marks a time of trauma, right, or, or there's a lot of pain and associations that come up. Maybe there's joy and celebration, but maybe also, like, the gathering of family It's a time for, like, uh, for grief, right? Maybe it's like Festivus. There's the airing of grievances. <laughs> There's like a lot of pain that comes up, right? Or perhaps remembering like remembering broken relationships, or maybe it's just even the ways you realize, here are the things I thought my life would be, and it is not. It's a reminder of disappointment. Or it may feel just like empty because it's just an empty celebration marred by like commercialism, right? But I think the Lord, actually, we have an opportunity, right? And the Lord wants Christmas, wants the reality of celebrating Jesus' birth in terms of the actual substance of this text to encourage us in the darkness of everyday life. You know, whether that's even just a sense in which you realize, oh, what are the ways I've been living like I'm the king of my own life? Saying to Jesus, I want you in some areas of my life, but not in all. There's some things you can't touch. Like, this is mine. This is for me, right? But Jesus calls us to loosen that grip and trust him. He is the good God, right? Maybe, maybe, man, maybe there's people listening who you, you've never actually said yes to Jesus fully, like, and he's calling you to that. If, if not already, follow him. He, you will lose nothing, nothing in the long run and, and in the long run and gain everything. Eternal life. Everything the human heart longs for mo most. And, you know, if, if there is conviction, remember that, like, conviction is brought about because the Lord actually, it's an invitation to freedom an invitation to the sweetness, you know, the word, like sweeter than honey, the true sweetness of a relationship with God, the God of the universe, the God who came as a vulnerable infant, infant into darkness to lift us up, to lift us up. You know, the birth narratives of Jesus, they remind us of many things, but one of them is that the world is so dark, right? The whole thing is like, oh, Herod's trying to kill Jesus. And, but bigger than that, it's telling us that God hasn't given up on the world, that he cares that there will be a beautiful ending, right? We can kind of like, it can feel, you know, you watch, you watch a Disney film, or you watch a film with a happy ending, and it, it can feel easy to kind of snidely be like, yeah, that's not how the world works. And you're right, that's not how the world works in the short term. But the long term, we're actually told that the Lord does bring the happy ending that we are all longing for most. We're all longing for most. You know, we're talking about like political leaders and kings and like the kind of like, um, the ways that human kings fail, and even just whatever vision, whatever side of the political spectrum you tend towards, right? Like, there's oftentimes a vision, whether it's of returning to a state of, a state of uh, 
a, a true and last, like a golden kingdom, or it's like a progressive vision of like we're moving towards this like just society. There's always a sense of like utopia that we long for, and yet it's always, always, always deferred, right? It's ever receding. Like we, see, we think we get closer and then we get yanked back. It's like, oh, I, I guess not. I guess we're still doing that, right? Um, there was a, there's a, uh, there was a, theory, uh, a political theorist named Francis Fukuyama who at, at, in the early, late 80s, early 90s, when the Soviet Union crumbled and fell, he actually said it was the end of history. And he said that liberal democracies had won. The, end, the history was over. It, it, like, we won. Not we won, but like the idea is that, oh, great, this, like, synth, this kind of dialectic through history is over, and now we've achieved a sustainable form of politics which is going to sweep the world. Kind of, I might be overstating his case, but in any case, it didn't work out, right? It didn't work out. And I actually have a, I have a buddy who uh, met this guy, Fukuyama, at like, he was invited to a, a like a dinner, like a, uh, a dinner or a talk or something, and he was sitting, he, I believe he went up, I think he was at the same table or he went up to him and he's like, yeah, that didn't really work out for you so much, did it? And my friend was not invited back to any of those events, <laughs> uh, needless to say. But the image of utopia is always, always receding, and it's always like, well, eventually we'll get there, eventually. And so it has been for all of human history that eventually we'll get there, right? But it's not, we're not going to get there because we're flawed. Because the problem isn't just out there, it's in here. But it's found in Jesus because he's a good king over all history. Because he lives. There's that old that song from the 50s or 60s, that, that, that classic song that says, because he lives, right? Talks about the hope we have because he lives. So this is a reminder for those who say yes to the king that death and sadness and pain, they don't have the last word. And a reminder that we are welcomed into a true and lasting family. You know, it's like we're, we were used to being a rebel army, and now the God who we were opposed to is saying, like, all is forgiven, the doors are open, come, come, be healed, come, be healed. And may our models in our lives be those who are faithful in the midst of their lives. Think of Mary's humility, Joseph's obedience, the everyday people who encountered Jesus and trusted him, the wise men who sought truth, who sought truth with humility and are culminating in an act of worship, but who sought truth and use their riches, their earthly goods, to honor our king. I'm going to pray.